It's Thursday, July 22nd, 2021, and this is What's the Point? On the show this week, the tragic case of a Caledon mother and her three children who were killed in a devastating collision. While Brady Robertson has pled guilty to dangerous driving, he and his defense team are fighting other charges. To talk about it are reporters Netta Zafar and Tasha O'Neill, along with host San Graywall. Now, here's San Graywall. Hi, everyone. A, a pretty sad story to talk about today. I have the pointers, uh, Tasha O'Neill and Netta Zafar. With us, they have been following the trial of Brady Robertson. He is the 21-year-old Caledon man charged with nine counts of dangerous driving, causing death and impaired driving in connection with the just horrific crash that took the lives of the the Chisulo family last summer, shortly after 12 noon on June 18th, 2020, last year uh, robertson he was 20 years old at the time was driving down countryside road toward torbrum going about 135 kilometers an hour in a 70 kilometer hour zone according to a reconstruction of the scene and the black box data the computer data from from his vehicle an infinity g35 a blue colored car that he was driving when he approached the intersection going at a brutally high rate of speed he, he had to swerve out of his lane to avoid the stopped cars in front of him. And, and then he turned back toward the intersection and he violently slammed into the driver's side of the Volkswagen Atlas that was driven by Carolina Chisulo. And, and in the back were her three, her three daughters. I'm not going to say their names. I, we've reported their names, but I, I just don't feel like saying their names. But I will say that they were six, three, and one. And all four of the girls and their mother died. They succumbed to their injuries. The trial has begun. Robertson is not owning up to the impaired charges. He's trying to fight the impaired charges. He's pleaded guilty to the dangerous driving charges. So he admits that it was him in the car and that he was driving, I think, dangerously is an understatement. He, he was driving like a madman, like a man with like absolutely no regard for human life. And the four... The four charges of dangerous driving, he's, he's, he's pleaded guilty to those. But the other five charges, including four charges of impaired driving, he is fighting. And then there's a fifth, uh, a fifth charge, sorry, uh, there's nine charges altogether. But of the five that he's fighting, uh, four are impaired charges. And there's a fifth charge he's fighting for an incident that took place two days earlier where video footage captured the same car driving violently up onto a sidewalk very close to the same spot just north of Brampton in Caledon, very close to where Brady Robertson lives. And like I said, only about a five-minute drive where the, the tragic accident took place. Two days earlier, that same car was, was seen with the driver passed out. It's a pretty disturbing video to watch, but we've, I think, linked to it on the pointer, and you can, you can get it on YouTube. And, and the driver in that incident two days prior to the fatality passed out drives up onto a sidewalk, comes up to a light standard or a pole of some sort. Passersby are shocked and 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 one tries to get into the the car through the passenger side door to stop the driver, but then he comes to, he snaps to from being passed out, reverses and then and then puts it back into drive and like tears off and and is gone. And the lawyers are claiming that 
there's no evidence that proves that although it, it's it's the same car and it was just two days earlier in the same area, the lawyers are claiming there's no evidence that proves it was Robertson inside the Infinity two days before the tragedy. But there's no doubt that it was him that killed the Chisulo family. And I think, Natasha, I will start with you. If you can talk a little bit about, you, both you and Netta have been following the trial since it began uh, about a week and a half ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the key points that you caught when you were reporting on and following the trial? Yeah, so the biggest thing that is happening is the two lawyers of Robertson, Craig Bonnemley and Malaya Quenville, they are trying to put through an application against the search and seizure of Robertson's car under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So this has become an interesting debacle just because the car was searched six days after the incident happened. And the police are claiming that they did an inventory search, which does happen and should happen once a car is pulled off the road. And this is to ensure that any valuables that are in the car are kept safe while in police custody. However, the defense is saying that this search happened too late, and because the windshield of the car was broken, that it's kind of improper to do a search if any valuables could have already been taken. When they did do a search, Sergeant Gary Carty, the investigation's major case manager, he was the one who did the search. He found four pills, um, which were later tested to be fentanyl, and 8.5 grams of cannabis. This then led to the arrest of Robertson for dangerous driving as well as an impaired driving charge. Yeah, four four charges of impaired driving. And, and Netta, you focused on the trial and, and watched some of the evidence be presented regarding the blood sample. And, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there was also a urine sample that was taken from Brady Robertson. He was originally sent to Brampton Civic Hospital immediately after the crash that killed the Chisulo family. And then a couple of hours later, he was transferred to Toronto, I believe to St. Mike's. And there were samples of his blood taken at both hospitals. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from following the trial? Yeah, of course. So he was transferred, you are correct, he was transferred to St. Mike's. While he was at Brampton Civic, he had his blood drawn around 1 p.m. And this was an hour after the accident happened. Testing of that blood found that Robertson did have THC in his system, which is the active agent in marijuana. So the legal limit of marijuana is 5 nanograms per milliliter of blood. The toxicology report, which was presented by forensic scientist Betty Chow during the trial, showed Robertson had 40 nanograms per milliliter of blood, and there's a range of error, plus or minus 3 nanograms. So it was clear that he did have THC in his system during that first blood test. And Chow explained, you know, those that do have THC, the user's perception of time can be altered and would be very hard to focus on more thing than one while driving. And not to mention, of course, it does impact the individual's ability to control a heavy motor vehicle. So it all depends on the way that it's consumed. So if it was smoked or waped, effects will be seen within minutes and can last upwards of six hours. But if it was consumed orally, like through a gummy, it can take longer to enter the bloodstream and effects may not be seen for up to an hour. 
And in that case, it can last up to eight hours in the system. In this first blood sample, fentanyl was not detected, but as you mentioned, Sam, there was a urine sample as well, and it was found in there. During cross-examination, Chow said, you know, it was possible that fentanyl was administered to Robertson after he got to the hospital. He did separate bad injuries from the crash. During trial, it was shared he had two broken femurs. And then a second blood test was taken at 3 p.m. And this was when he was at St. Mike's Hospital. The analysis found that he had 15 nanograms of THC per millimeter of blood with an error range of plus one or minus one. And less than 1.3 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl was also detected. So first blood test, no fentanyl. Second blood test, fentanyl. According to Chow, the fentanyl levels could be due to, again, if it was administered, as it was, you know, a couple hours after the first blood test. If that wasn't the case, she did say that the tests are two different samples in two separate tubes, which could have resulted in a different quality for each sample. So fentanyl was detected in the first, sorry, not detected in the first blood sample, but urine sample, and also detected in the second blood sample. So he had eight times the legal limit of THC, the active chemical ingredient in cannabis or marijuana. It's it's a hallucinogen. It, it obviously impairs your ability to drive. It's going to cause major, major problems to anyone who's trying to operate a motor vehicle. You're not able to focus. You have other sensory issues, which basically, just like driving when you're drunk, if you're under the influence of alcohol, and it impairs your ability to drive, THC driving when you're high, I don't know if it's exactly the same type of impairment, but it's certainly impairment, and that's why it's illegal. And he had eight times the legal limit of THC in his system, according to the first blood sample that was taken roughly an hour after the crash. And now, Natasha, I'll switch back to you. The defense lawyers are arguing that because they claim Robertson's charter rights were violated, the search and seizure that took place six days later, and, and just to make it clear to, to everyone, the reason Peel police could not search the vehicle at the site or immediately after the crash was because the car had been engulfed in flames, the whole front half of that vehicle was completely obliterated, just smashed apart. You can see it from the pictures. So it, it's eventually at some point removed. It's taken to some place where it's impounded and kept. And Peel police have explained that, you know, when, when they were able to get to it and, and do the search for the inventory, they find the fentanyl and the cannabis in the car. And then subsequent to that, they laid the charges that same day while Robertson was in hospital. And the defense is arguing that because the search and seizure, according to the defense, violated the charter rights, that the cannabis and the fentanyl, that evidence should be thrown out, but also the blood samples and the urine samples should be thrown out as well. They should not be included as evidence in the trial because the defense is arguing that had it not been for the legal search and seizure, police wouldn't even have asked for the medical records, the, the samples to examine the possibility of impairment because they only sort of stumbled onto that through the allegedly improper search and seizure that found the drugs. I have a lot of problems with that. And I'd like to ask you, Natasha, we don't know exactly how this works, but my understanding would be, and having covered this sort of thing for a long time, 
and looked at these these stories, you know, as an editor and as a journalist, if there's an accident where four people have been killed and someone's been driving 135 kilometers an hour, and maybe they didn't know at the time it was 135 kilometers an hour, but they certainly knew it was incredibly fast. And they had witness accounts right at the scene and the evidence of like just the damage done to the vehicles. It's clear that there could be a suspicion that there was something impacting Robertson's driving. And I would think that it would have been standard in a situation like that, that police would try to obtain medical evidence. They can't do a breathalyzer or they can't do other types of toxicology testing at the scene because Robertson has to be rushed to the hospital. He's he's badly injured himself. So you can't do that. But as soon as he gets to the hospital, they're going to draw blood. They're going to take a urine sample. And I would think that regardless of what's found in his car six days later, they're going to want to know if the blood sample and the urine sample found any evidence of any chemical substances that could have you know, led to impaired driving. So, Natasha, I'm not quite sure where the defense lawyers are going with this. And if you could talk about some of the other claims that they were making in their arguments. Yeah, and it, and it is kind of confusing for sure. But the biggest thing that the defense lawyers um, have a problem with is the fact that they believe that the police went into the vehicle to search for evidence. And to search for evidence within a vehicle, they're supposed to obtain a warrant. And so because that potential search and seizure under their idea is improper, it then leads to the police to obtain a warrant for blood, which they did go and get, and Sergeant Cardi did it himself, and he testified to say that he did that. The other slight problem is that the warrant was just for blood. However, the hospital staff ended up giving Sergeant Cardi a urine sample as well. Um, the Crown has already said that this was an overseizure and that it's a problem that that happened. However, it shouldn't be enough to throw out the blood samples and the, the drugs found in the car, which in the end would probably be the best case to say that Robertson was driving impaired. That's our only evidence, quite literally. So that's what they're saying about how that all ties with the search and seizure along with the blood samples. And just again, to offer a little bit more information, my understanding is that the judge, according to what I read in, in our reporting, the transcripts and the live reporting that both of you did, the judge seemed to suggest that the acquiring of the urine sample doesn't appear to have been a serious oversight, that if they end up getting the urine sample, even though the warrant only specifically dealt with the blood sample, unless I'm reading it wrong, it seemed like the judge's comment suggested that she didn't see that as a major problem or an issue. No, um, she didn't. She didn't find that to be overly problematic. Yeah. Like, you know, basically you're saying, okay, you, you might not have written the warrant out perfectly, but it was understood that when you said blood samples that, okay, if you were given the blood and the urine, because the urine samples would show things that maybe the blood wouldn't show, that's not really a huge reach. And that's sort of the staff at the hospital doing their job. If they've detected that, hey, there was, there was fentanyl found in the urine and four people are dead. I think it would be pretty egregious if that evidence from the urine sample was not shared with the police. 
So we'll see what happens. We don't know how the judge, it's a judge only trial, no jury. Yeah. And, and she's set to, to make her decision on whether the blood will be omitted or if Robertson would be found guilty of impairment on September 17th. Right. So the the impaired charges are going to be that we'll have a verdict on that. And as you said, some of the evidence, what's going to happen with that for the the ongoing portions of the trial, because the trial's continuing in, in three stages. We're just at the first stage right now, but then there's two more stages to come months later. Netta, can you talk a little bit about the incident that took place two days prior to the tragic accident? Are you familiar with what the video showed, what the witnesses have said, you know, what we do and don't know about that incident that took place two days prior to the Chisulo family being killed. Yeah, of course. So two days prior, there was a blue vehicle, blue infinity that was traveling really fast through a area with a lot of people. It did mount the curb and witnesses during the trial said and it has been shared on social media a lot after the incident was that they saw a driver inside who seemed to be asleep at the wheel and then they tried to you know get control of it you know stop the vehicle that was still going at that point the driver snapped back woke up and drove away and it was a really violent scene surprisingly nobody got hurt because the vehicle did seem to be traveling really fast, but that is what transpired two days prior. Yeah, and just, you know, what I saw from the video, I've watched the video a number of times, initially when it mounts the curb and goes up onto the sidewalk, it's sort of slowing down, but then when the driver snaps too, and there's a bystander who actually is trying to get in through the passenger side door, he reverses quite fast and then speeds off very quickly. So yeah, you know, it is it is a very shocking, disturbing video to watch that someone would be driving a vehicle in that state whatever was going on with the driver it was so bad that they pass out while they're driving in the midst of traffic in the midst of like pedestrians walking along the sidewalk that you've driven up onto while you're passed out or asleep natasha can you talk a little bit about that incident and what the defense lawyers are arguing about the incident and the video what it showed and did not show according to the defense lawyers, the incident that took place two days before the tragic crash. So the defense are saying that there is not enough proof to say that the person behind the wheel in this exact same car as the crash two days later is Robertson. They cannot say that there's not enough proof. Witnesses place a male driver fitting a description similar to Robertson, but just because there's no, there was no lineup, the defense are saying that there's not enough to say that it was him. The other thing that they're saying is that Whoever the driver was, a witness did say that they were having some sort of what they described as a medical episode. So because of that, the defense is really clinging on to this idea of that it's a could be a medical episode. It may have have anything to do with any sort of impairment, potentially. I'm just going to jump in in terms of a, a major flaw I see in the presentation of the defense's argument. On one hand, they're claiming there's not enough evidence to prove even though the Crown has stated that it's the same driver's license plate, it's the same car, same plate missing from the front. So they've been able to establish, I guess, from the video, all of that about the vehicle in the incident two days prior to the fatal crash. And the witnesses have said it was a 
young, slim or skinny white man with a ball cap, roughly the age of 20, which all fits Robertson's description. The defense is arguing that at the same time, the claim that there's not enough evidence to prove it was Robertson. They're also saying there it might have been a, quote, medical episode. So they seem to be suggesting, well, if it was Robertson, he might not have been impaired. It might have been a medical problem two days prior. But then they're turning around and saying, but you can't even prove that it was him. Which argument are you going to go with? That it was him and he was suffering from a medical episode or that it wasn't him? I think they need to sort of pick their lane so to speak. A lot of other problems I find the defense is claiming that the two incidents took place in different locations and therefore, oh, how could you assume it's the same driver? Well, actually, they took place very close to each other. The incident, you know, where the Chisulu family was killed is very close, like practically around the corner, like I would say a five minute drive from where the same car mounted the curb and drove up onto the sidewalk two days earlier. So that's a bit problematic. And it also happens to be that where the sidewalk incident happened is very close, again, almost around the corner from Robertson's residence where he lives. We will keep following the trial and the entire story. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's a matter of huge public interest. The fact that this individual is is trying to get evidence of his impairment thrown out the fact that four people are dead, three young girls and, and, and their mother. And, you know, we need to see how our criminal justice system works in this case, because I don't think we're going to put up collectively as a society. And I certainly think you know, I know the pointer. We're going to be advocating and, and reporting really hard if Robertson gets off on a lot of this or gets a light sentence or if some of this evidence gets thrown out and the impaired charges get thrown out. And this guy who's clearly a menace to society and, and simply should not be driving. My understanding is that there's reporting that he had an extensive uh, record of driving infractions prior to these events that in his short time between the time when he got a license, a driver's license, and these these horrific incidents, the, the tragedy that we're all talking about, that he'd already committed a whole bunch of driving infractions. And then we see him, you know, apparently, according to strong evidence, passing out while he's driving. And then two days later, driving 135 kilometers an hour, you know, into a family SUV that that wipes out a lovely family, a mother and her three young daughters. So stay tuned. Netta and Natasha will keep uh, reporting on it, and we'll talk to everyone soon. This week's show was hosted by Sam Graywall with Netta Safar and Tasha O'Neill. Produced by yours truly. Music from Shahed. Check out new episodes of What's the Point weekly here at thepointer.com. I'm Jeff Chalmers. Thank you for listening. See you next time.